It's Friday, August 8th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. And now, a New Yorker with a complaint related to soup. Okay, could you do it again, but this time really hit soup. And now, a New Yorker with a complaint related to soup. That's all I need right now, you and your butternut squash. This has been a New Yorker with a complaint related to soup. Uh, You know, I hope that was funny. If not funny, maybe perhaps delightful or something, something, let's say, bordering in the realm of the humorous, because we have a rather large section today. It's about a 16-minute section. It's about comedy and mental illness. But, you know, even though the first word is comedy, it's not funny. It's not funny per se. Uh, You know, I could give a conventional joke. All right, I'll do so. You could tell this to kids, too. Guy walks into a bar, hears a tiny voice. I like your tie. Looks around. Bartender's not saying anything. Again, I just like the cut of your jib. Where is that coming from? Once more, he hears someone say, That's a very flattering haircut. Guy says, What's going on? Bartender says, Don't mind that. Those are the peanuts. They're complimentary. All right. Thus, making up for all the lack of humor, but insight that you'll hear in our piece about comedians and mental illness. And in the spiel, I'll be talking about history. History as lived through, as opposed to read in a book. But now, crazy funny. Comedians are crazy. A little crazy. We all know this, or perceive it, but Amy Solomon, who recently graduated from Princeton University, studied it for her senior thesis. She interviewed dozens of comedians, read about hundreds more, and found out that they were all a little to a lot mentally unbalanced. Except one. Here's the unnuts Jerry Seinfeld discussing mental health on The Howard Stern Show. And if you're not angry, forget about it. You can never be a comedian. But I was not in, uh, I didn't have a horrible growing up. uh, I don't, I bet you if I talk to you about your parents. Yeah. I'll bet you you're angry with them. Really? Yeah. You have tremendous irritability. I do. As if you didn't get the right kind of attention. Something was wrong. No, let me ask you this. Do you think uh, your mother and father really knew who you were? Um... Did you, no, did your father no, ever I didn't sit think down? it was any of their business. But, but, but wait a second. That's, you see, here we go. That's not a joke. That's a deep thing. Jerry Seinfeld aside, or maybe not aside, because we'll get to him. The question is, why is there such a strong, bordering on ironclad link between comedy and mental illness? And oftentimes, it's the tragic side of mental illness. Like in 1966, Lenny Bruce dies of a drug overdose. 1977, Freddie Prince shoots himself. 79, Steve Lubetkin jumps to his death from the top of the Hyatt next to the comedy store where he just performed. 1980, Richard Pryor sets himself on fire. 1981, John Belushi. 1987, Chris Farley. 2005, Mitch Hedberg dies of a drug overdose. 2007, Richard Jenny kills himself. 2010, Greg Giraldo dies of a prescription overdose. So I asked Amy Solomon, who does improv, to explain how she got into this subject. I can't locate when I learned this stereotype, but I basically always thought you have to be really messed up to be a comedian. And that really upset me because everything was going great for me. Yeah. And so I wanted something to go poorly so that I would have material to draw on. I basically wanted to trace, like, where does that come from? Because that didn't used to exist. Comedians used to be these just guys that got up there and did their spiel and did their song and dance routine. And we didn't think about Bob Hope in this way. But now we just sort of think of comedians as these 
really insane creatures. Some of the early uh, comedians who kind of broke the mold were George Carlin a little bit, definitely Richard Pryor, but the big one was Jonathan Winters. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just that Jonathan Winters was wacky and thought differently. I mean, Jonathan Winters had serious mental illness, Mm -hmm. right? He's bipolar. He spent two big stints in psych wards. And the, his, so his big thing was he had this big incident where he was at a gig in San Francisco, and it was as he was getting pretty famous. So he was starting to become known. And he climbed the supposedly climbed the mast of a ship um, docked in the bay. And he... Um, so Some people say he was naked. Some people say he was drunk, though he said he, he'd already quit alcohol. Um, but basically, that was like the first real association of a crazy comedian. Did he think that the mental illness helped his comedy or got in the way more? Absolutely helped it. I mean, Jonathan Winters is like frenetic character to character. And like all the people I talked to who knew him, that's how he was in real life. Even if you watch a interview with him where he's being really sincere, he's still going in and out of everybody's voices. So his whole life was about how to balance the comedy and the mental illness and not let it overrun it. Did he have to lose some edge or did he have to get a little less funny to get healed? I don't know. I mean, that's something that and I talked to like tons of comedians today, like Sarah Silverman and Mark Maron and all these people. And some of them are so reticent to seek. A sp- I mean, they all see therapists, but a lot of people don't want to do medication. They're really scared of that kind of thing because they're worried it'll take the edge off and that they'll lose their spark. But being an effective comic without medication and therapy wasn't really a viable choice for Sarah Benacasa. She's the author of Agora Fabulous Dispatches from My Bedroom. Agoraphobia is tricky if you need to get to gigs. I've heard comedians tell me if I felt better, I wouldn't have anything to work with. And to me, a funny person is a funny person. If you need to be miserable to be amusing, or conversely, if you need to be happy to be amusing, maybe you are in the wrong line of work. Yeah, and maybe I don't want to necessarily be in that audience while you work that out. But do you know comedians who have gotten either therapy or maybe medication and, you know, are at a better place in their life or in a better place mentally? And if so, how do you think? What's your assessment of how that has affected their comedy? You know, I think that people who go into recovery specifically who are willing to share that, oftentimes they have a whole new lease on life and a whole new approach to things, and that can really inform their comedy in a really interesting way. I think there is something fascinating for an audience member to listen to a comedian who has gone through something big and to hear that person reflect and So sometimes that's going through an addiction. I think it's actually more taboo for someone to talk about things like panic attacks because we can understand, oh, I used to be a hard drinker. Here are some drinking stories. I used to do coke. Here are some cocaine stories. But it's harder for us, I think, as a society to wrap our minds around the idea of I used to be dealing with a mental illness involving being afraid of getting on a train and now I can get on a train. It's not even as funny to talk about. Yeah, and I think that there's a model for people who were addicted and go into recovery in the arts, you know, rock and roll and, and, and music, but in definitely in comedy. And Mark Marin talks about it a lot. A, it's not taboo. B, it doesn't seem to go right to the guts of what makes a comedian a comedian, whereas 
most comedians, a lot of comedians have some version of either anxiety or neuroses as their persona. Therefore, if we attack this, aren't we dismantling, you know, exactly who we are in a way that being a drunk and being a great guitar player isn't, you know, so intertwined? Yeah, I think of what would happen if Richard Lewis never had a panic attack again. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't have them anymore, which is awesome. But um, that persona, what would that persona have been? What would it be without anxiety? And of course, I'm thinking more of his stuff in the 80s and early 90s. And he does more than just shtick about being anxious. But it was an integral part of what people got from his, you know, five minutes it's interesting to wonder what that would be without the anxiety. I think he would be funny regardless. But Gary Gullman, a stand-up who suffers from a major depressive disorder, says a lot of comedians are operating under the assumption that getting help would make them less funny. Yeah, I think they think that. I don't, I don't know that I'm certainly a worse comedian when I'm, when I'm in the fetal position, depressed and unable to get on stage. Or, well, I always get on stage, but my day is spent self-pity and and misery and fear and doubt and so that doesn't that doesn't help comedy my, my ability to to sustain some sort of uh, rhythm and momentum that that helps so. right so that's what sarah benacasa said when she was in the grips of agoraphobia well obviously she's not going to be able to do stand-up so you have to get past wow. a certain threshold right yeah but i think she also says that Comedians think that if, you know, they're paxled out or maybe just uh, happy-go-lucky types, they're going to lose their insight, they're going to lose their edge. That might be possible, but I I never get the feeling that they're afraid of losing their edge because then they'll be lesser artists or anything like that. It's It seems to be just a... A, a thing that they say. I've never heard that ever happening. Oh, this guy lost his edge because he was well-balanced. You're always going to have the sensitivity and the irritability and, and memory. I, I don't buy that. Chris Gethard is a stand-up and host of The Chris Gethard Show. I've been told that I'm bipolar. I've been told I'm manic-depressive. I've been told I'm dysthymic, um, which are all varying degrees of kind of the same thing. As I get older, I've sort of, I'm like, I don't the name of it doesn't matter to me as much as the fact that every five years it seems like it's it's spaced out. Now it seems to be the last one was 2012, where I had an, an episode where I wound up wandering around the cliffs of Weehawken by myself, thinking I might be a ghost that no one could see. Like it's a really scary thing. So to me, whatever the name of that is, is not as important as the fact that I need to really regulate it and work on it hard. For Chris, mental health issues are something to battle, to be sure. But they're also, like when he performs at the Upright Citizens Brigade, they're also a rich source of material. When I found comedy, I started doing comedy at UCB when I was 19. And it was the first environment where people didn't care how old I was, didn't care that I didn't really have a right to be saying something, didn't care that I was kind of this, like, kid with glasses who shouldn't be saying anything to anybody. It just felt like the first place where it's like, you're funny, so you can say what you want. And that was the thing that really helped me a lot. And after, I think it was about 2006, six or seven years of doing comedy, I started talking about my mental issues on stage and a lot of people identified with them. And that really became the basis for me having a cult following. It was a lot of college-age kids who were suffering So as Amy Solomon has documented, it's not that hard for a fan who deals with mental health issues to find a comedian without at least some demons. There is maybe one exception. And I asked every comedian, like, 
it, does every comedian you know have these demons? They'll say, most of them said, yes, absolutely, but there are exceptions. And I would say, okay, who's the exception? They would say, Jerry Seinfeld, pretty much everybody across the board. Um, and I think it really bugs him. There's like some quote from him about how he feels like he was kind of like excluded from a lot of like, I don't know, friendship circles because he doesn't feel like he has this. And I mean, clearly, I don't think it's a requirement to be a great comedian to have these these this darkness. But I think because so many comedians today grew up watching Richard Pryor and like who set himself on fire while a lot of these people were growing up, they've come to believe that that is comedy's goal is to make people it's like to make light of the darkness kind of thing. What do you think? What do you mean? What do you do? You, do you agree with that? I mean, I love that comedy can do that. And I think it's really important. I think society is heading down a road where we need to have a serious talk about mental illness and that comedy has always been like a few steps ahead of America and talking about that kind of thing. So I think it's really important. But I do, I mean, Seinfeld's an incredible comedian. So there's clearly room for non-confessional comedy. Um, I just think comedy always, like the definition of comedy is that it's hilarious because it's talking about the things that we can't necessarily talk about. And I think that that's because we can't necessarily talk about mental illness that openly yet, and so that's what they're talking about. Chris Gethard tweaks this analysis a little. He knows that a comedian who's debilitated by mental illness is no comedian at all, but he also says that experiencing the world from a bit of a remove has its merits. The theory I have is that when you have some issues, I think you feel a little separate from the world. And I think a lot of comedians, especially stand-ups at the end of the day, they're people who feel like they're on the outside analyzing. Like, a lot of stand-up is filtering and analyzing life. It's saying, like, hey, here's this thing that happens all the time, right? And that's when it gets the laugh, when the premise is, like, we all know this happens all the time, right? Like, that's something that I think connects people to an audience. And I think outsiders maybe can see that and analyze it and break it down a little bit more. But I think, yeah, a lot of them are very, very neurotic or total narcissists, and that's why they feel like they have the right to get on stage and just have everybody listen to them. And it's a sad thing, but I think all the best people are people who fight through that or don't let that be the dictating aspect of their lives. Chris is 34 years old. He's been in comedy since he was 19. It took him time to recognize that he couldn't medicate just with comedy. Sarah Benacasa says comics, especially younger comics, still haven't come to that realization. I hope that as we get older, we get better with dealing with mental health issues. But, you know, I just lost a friend to suicide, a comedian named Juwan Lee. And so... it's really, it seems like two steps forward, two steps back. You know, every time I get to a place where I look at everybody I came up with and say, yeah, we've all kind of found our path. Everything's going all right for everybody. Something like that, you know, maybe not that dramatic, but some kind of setback happens. And I think it's incredibly important that people within the comedy community know that there are mental health resources that they can avail themselves of. Well, the Comedy Store uh, was recently reported to have two staff 
psychologists available to comedians? Do you know if comedians avail themselves of those professionals? I know that comedians did avail themselves. That was Jamie Masada over at the Comedy Store. And when I heard about that in 2011, um, that was right after Greg Giraldo died, I believe. I emailed Jamie, who I've never met before, and I just said, thank you so much, because it means a lot to a lot of us that such a thing would be available. Do you think that the wisdom that you talked about, Marin talking about these issues on a show, add up to the message, comedians, get help, get as happy as you can, it won't hurt your comedy, or do you think comedians aren't there yet, that that message hasn't really sunk in? Oh, I think that message definitely hasn't sunk in. I think that comedy creates this arena in which you can be an adolescent and deal with things in maladaptive ways uh, for the rest of your life if you want to. You never really have to settle down. You never really have to have a regular schedule. If you are able to wrangle the kinds of jobs or you're living off someone else's income and you're able to work at odd hours and still make your shows at night and then a lot of the bonding happens just through drinking or through doing drugs or what have you. Um, you you kind of never have an incentive to get better, of course, unless an individual hits bottom in some way and has people in his or her lives to, to help him or her out. But there's not a whole lot of... Um, healthy structure, I'd say, in, in the comedy community. It's, it's not necessarily a very healing place, although I find being on stage can be healing. But for a lot of people, that's their therapy is getting on stage. And sometimes that serves the audience really well because you get these raw performances that are amazing. But yeah, I don't know yeah. that it serves the comedian particularly well. Well, you know, I've heard this and you've heard this and you've gone through real therapy. If that's my therapy, there's no therapist. There's a drunk in the back and there's a two drink minimum. How great could that therapy be? Yeah, I mean, it feels great. It's like to me, comedy is more of a drug than a therapy. If you say that's my therapy, you expect a heckler to yell. And how does that make you feel? (laughs) That was Sarah Benacasa. She's the author of Agora Fabulous. The other comedians in this piece were Chris Gethard, whose comedy album is called My Comedy Album, and Gary Goleman. He has a fall tour coming up. It'll be called It's About Time, and then he'll be releasing a one-hour special of said tour called It's About Time. Jerry Seinfeld is host of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Amy Solomon, who wrote the thesis that got this ball rolling for us, just graduated from Princeton. She's moving to L.A., maybe to write comedy. Follow her on Twitter at AmyBethSOL. And special thanks to talent scout Steve Drummond, who brought Amy's thesis to our attention. And now the spiel. 40 years ago today, Richard Nixon announced he'd be leaving the White House, stepping down due to the Watergate crisis. 40 years ago tomorrow, he did. It seemed by some as a dark day in U.S. history. For others, it's a proud day. America, I just read this in an op-ed in the journal by Michael Oren, former Israel ambassador to the U.S., former guest on The Gist, points out that America, along with Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and Great Britain, are the only countries in the world to have never experienced a second of non-democratic rule. So some took that moment and saw a version of American greatness. Maybe you had to squint a little bit. But there were no bullets fired, no tanks rolled through the streets. Once again, a peaceful transition of power. But there's a third group who doesn't see it at all. 
it's not just that they're ignorant of history. It's that they proudly say, that was before I was even born. Yeah, some interesting things happened before you were born. In fact, most interesting things did. But I don't want to spend this time scolding the young, the callow, the immodestly ahistoric. I want to talk about the value of having lived through a period. Now, when Nixon left office, I was alive. I was too young to form a memory. So I took it upon myself to learn, to really learn about the two great events that I was alive for, but couldn't remember. No, not the Knicks 1973 championship, based on the theory that, of course, the Knicks would win another championship soon. I'm talking about Watergate and Vietnam. I learned who Donald Segretti was. I learned who B.B. Rebozo was. I learned about the Maddox. I learned about the Turner Joy. And I think I did it because I was interested. I am interested, but also because I didn't want to be at a disadvantage when discussing these topics with people even slightly older than myself. Now I'm at that age where I really did live through history that other adults, bona fide, aware, informed, curious adults, only experienced on the page. A quite brilliant colleague of mine, about 15 years my junior, said to me the other day, I never got what the big deal about Ronald Reagan was. And so she ticked off all the things that reading a good Reagan biography would tell you. Actor, governor, charisma, great communicator, stood up to communism, landslide election. But why are so many people enamored of the guy? Oh man, I realized and told her. You've heard about it, but you never really lived through just how much the 70s sucked. It was a scared, uncertain, itchy time. It's itchy. You've seen the pictures, but unless you lived in the shirts of the 70s, you don't realize how much they itched. You know, the whole culture itched. Maybe the USSR would nuke America. Maybe they'd just defeat us economically. There were gas lines. There was anxiety about using every bit of energy. Not the anxiety, quote-unquote, of today, when you could get an app on your smartphone to calculate your carbon footprint offset. No, there was a real debate about whether we should douse the eternal flame in Arlington National Cemetery because it used too much methane. How much methane? $37 a month worth of methane. And for years, pretty much since Watergate, America just didn't feel good about itself. Things were such a bummer. Crime was real. Crime was pervasive. Today, maybe yesterday, we found out that there were these couple of, let's call them entrepreneurs who invented an app. And by the way, invented an app that's going to become the punchline of the future, like Pet Rocks is to the 70s. Anyway, so they invented an app that will tell you if your neighborhood is sketchy. So this prompted a backlash accusing them of privilege and racism and looking too white and hipstery in their Crane's New York press photo. But in the 70s, a Gallup poll showed that 75% of women were afraid to walk near their homes at night. A lot of these stats can be found and have been fleshed out in Rick Perlstein's new book, The Invisible Bridge. It's about the time from Nixon to Reagan. As I read the book, which is great, by the way, I've been struck not with the thought, what an interesting bit of history, but more like, oh yeah, that fits in with what I remember. In fact, the book is so good that at times, like when it talks about how shocking The Exorcist was, or when it captures the prevalence of kidnappings and disappearances, and how really weird cults were everywhere and played the Astrodome, these things don't just strike a chord, they scratch an itch. Or at least I found myself scratching an itchy patch of skin and not just reading about, but remembering having lived through this history. A 
And that's it for today's show. Andrew Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcast, walks into a bar and hears, you have a certain je ne sais quoi. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has been cited for his savoir-faire by the complimentary peanut community. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. Give us a review in iTunes. We are on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. There, I have asked everyone what they think about one topic a show versus two. How about one topic sung versus one topic spoken? It's all up for discussion. Our Twitter feed is Slate Gist. To sign up for the daily newsletter that hits your inbox the moment the show is live, go to Slate.com slash Gist email. Email the Gist at Slate.com. No, I'm afraid not. Think I should have said Babe Ruth? It's just the OKC brothers getting drunk again. He also crapped my pants. You're such an asshole, Superman. Paint my house. Sorry I couldn't provide these setups, but when it comes to the punchline, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.